Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Whenever one discusses diversity, equity, and or inclusion, frequently the discussion ends up in a discrete box. Whenever there are conversations about health equity, it too will get defined or focused on a specific area. What I enjoy about this particular episode is the fact that there are clear ways that we can connect the dots to note the interrelatedness of collective efforts, not only with respect to diversity and inclusion, but their impact on health equity, understanding health systems and under and knowing that the acute and outpatient experiences are fully integrated as are health systems, hospitals, and health plans, and how each of those aspects becomes integral in terms of understanding how health equity is impacted. This episode's guest helps to connect a number of those dots because of his work in an integrated health system on the health plan side and really reinforces what it means to be community-based and community-focused in order to achieve optimal results in eliminating health disparities. So without further ado, here's our next episode of Crossing the Chasm. Welcome back to Crossing the Chasm. And today I'm joined by one of my favorite Michiganders uh, who is uh, here to join us is Dr. Peter Watson. Um, by way of background, um, Dr. Watson uh, currently is the vice president of, let me make sure I get this right, vice president of clinical operations and strategy for a health alliance plan associated with um, Henry Ford. Uh, well, it's the Henry Ford health system. It's not just the hospital, but it's the entire thing. Um, Peter's background, he's got a bachelor's uh, in biology from Kalamazoo College, where he also was uh, uh, ran track uh, in cross country, uh, received his uh, doctorate of medicine from Wayne State University, uh, and then his master's of medical management from Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Peter. So happy to have you join us. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here, and it's always great to have the chance to chat with you and see you again. It's been a while. I know it has been. It has been. So, Peter, we jump in at the beginning and always ask people to share their stories because part of diversity, equity, and inclusion is just making sure that we're getting people connected with people. So, tell us more about yourself beyond your academic uh, laurels. Well, thanks, Greg. Uh, as, as you said in the as you said in the intro, I am really, for the most part, a lifelong Michigander. I was born uh, in the Northwest. Um, but moved back to Detroit with my mom when I was pretty young, uh, just about 18 months old. Um, and I grew up uh, actually on the northeast side of Detroit in the city of Detroit uh, for all of my formative years, all the way into college. And I am um, a Michigander through and through, really. Uh, so uh, I, I grew up on the northeast side, I went to school in the city. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I left home and did undergraduate on the west side of the state in Kalamazoo 
and then uh, actually was really excited to come back to Detroit where I grew up and uh, went to medical school at Wayne State School of Medicine, which is a great place to train and still is. Um, and actually, when I finished med school uh, in the late 90s, around when you and I uh, graduated, uh, I thought long and hard about where I wanted to do my residency training and actually had a lot of choices uh, to go out of state, uh, train at some high quality programs, but after a lot of thoughtful reflection, uh, decided to stay in Detroit and uh, become an intern and resident and later chief resident at Henry Ford Hospital. And uh, there were many reasons for that. Um, Henry Ford Hospital has been a fixture in Detroit since 1915 when it was built. And I think one of the things that drew me to Henry Ford was Henry Ford's hospital's commitment to everyone in the city. Um, when the hospital was built, uh, historically, uh, Henry Ford built that hospital because there were really only two groups of folks in the city of Detroit in the early 20th century that could get care. Those folks who went to the city hospital and then really wealthy folks that could get their private care um, at suburban hospitals or private hospitals in the city. And Henry Ford, of course, had practical reasons to build a hospital as he was building uh, his own industry in the auto industry, um, but was really focused on trying to create a hospital that could care for the everyday person. And that tradition is something that we still live today, and it definitely played a role in my thought about continuing my training there. And uh, the rest is kind of history. I've never left Henry Ford, uh, although I've worn a few different hats at Henry Ford. When I finished training, um, I started as an academic physician, did a lot of teaching in the residency program and led, helped lead several of our training programs in internal medicine and uh, transitional year medicine. And then like you, Greg, uh, eventually got into the hospital medicine path and dedicated my internal medicine practice completely to inpatient care and I led our hospitalist group uh, for about 11 years and then transitioned to our, our integrated health plan, health alliance plan in 2017, uh, where I have done a lot of work in helping manage our broader population. We have nearly 400,000 members across Michigan, concentrated in Southeast Michigan in the Detroit area, but large groups of membership in the Flint area, Western Michigan, uh, and we serve Michiganders, regardless of their walk of life, we support Medicaid, um, Medicare, Medicaid duals, Medicare Advantage, and commercial members. Um, and that actually, again, is an extension of what I really like about working within our integrated system. We are trying to support our Michigan community, regardless of their health status, what, what their needs are, and create products to help them achieve their best outcome. So, uh, it's been a great journey, and the journey continues. So, that's an awesome story, and uh, and so consistent with what I know of you and who I know you to be, and uh, that that authenticity um, is you know comes through and through. So, uh, Peter, I know you know this is a diversity, equity, inclusion podcast, and you know, and we take a bent in terms of that, whether it's addressing health equity or, or other aspects of. Um, diversity and inclusion in healthcare. So why is that, uh, or is it important to you? Yeah, well, I think it's incredibly important and reflecting on coming on this podcast and talking to you, I was sort of thinking about my DEI journey. And um, 
I, and it's an ongoing journey and I continue to remain open and learn. But when I think about just growing up where I grew up and how I grew up, uh, DEI started with my mom actually. Um, and I haven't really thought about that until very recently when I'm tackling uh, DEI issues in healthcare, but I start thinking about why is it that I do what I do? And it did really start with my mom. When I grew up um, in Detroit, uh, we were uh, growing up in a tough neighborhood uh, along with my neighbors and Detroit um, was going through a lot of challenge and change at the time. Of course, when you're growing up as a kid, you don't really think of it that way. It's just your home. But even from an early age, my mom, who was actually going through school herself, when I was a young kid, she was going back to school, a single mom, raising me. Um, it was interesting. One of the things that my mom really beat into me early on is being curious and open, um, being accepting of people around you, um, and really focusing on getting educated and being grounded in, in our faith. Um, faith is very important in our household. It was important to my mom. And it's interesting when I look back at my early childhood, my mom did things, whether consciously or unconsciously, to force me a little bit out of the bubble. We would, um, she would encounter friends as she was going through college. And even though we grew up as uh, Catholics in the house, every year we would celebrate uh, Seder with some of her friends who were, who were Jewish. And before Easter, the week before Easter, I would go to one of our friends' house and learn about the Jewish traditions around Seder, which I look back at that now, and that was an amazing gift to me. Um, but it was just part of growing up. I think of folks that I grew up with that were impactful to me. I had a second grade teacher. I still remember her and her passed away a long time ago, taught me how to add, how to borrow and subtract. Very proud black woman in my school. And I remember this very vividly every day when we would say the Pledge of Allegiance, whisper under her breath, very quietly, but just loud enough for hear, us to hear, what a lie. Oh. And it was teaching us that, you know, we need to be proud of our country, we need to be, but we need to understand our history and we need to lean forward on that. Um, you sort of think about these checkpoints in your life and people that you encounter. Greg, I think about when you and I met um, as medical students and I had the pleasure of meeting your dad a couple of times. And I remember even then thinking back how important the work is to really make sure that people in our communities achieve the health status that they need to achieve. And you know, all these little checkpoints that I think of in my life, people that I've encountered, um, they've all taught me something. And I, I keep thinking back to my mom saying, hey, keep your mind open listen um and it's amazing how many things we learn and now of course that we're all in a more formalized work around dei and healthcare i recognize how all these things were checkpoints in my life long before dei was maybe a stated thing but it, of course it was a very real thing yeah. um so yes it's very important and i i would close by saying that through my medical training obviously working as an inpatient physician in an urban hospital, treating people from all walks of life that come into the hospital. Um, it has been an interesting journey to sort of reflect and see how far we've come. We have a long way to go, 
I just got finished doing rounds on the inpatient teaching service last month at Henry Ford. And I was really pleased to see the medical students I was working with asking me, hey, tell me more about what do you think the social drivers are that are causing this patient to be here? Something you and I, Greg, didn't talk about on rounds when we were third year students in the 90s, right? It was real, but it's great as a physician to see that our community is trying to evolve, is trying to be open. Um, and that's a great thing because we need to always achieve better. And and of course, in my work at the health plan, it's been a great gift to work with our members and my colleagues at the health plan because we are responsible for the entire population. And I am continually challenging myself to remain open and listening to folks of many different backgrounds that we work at at the health plan to try to meet people where they are and support them and really get them to their highest attainable health status. It's a challenge though, and there's more work to be done. Yeah, there, there always is more work to be done, Pete, and uh, you're, you're doing it in so many different ways, Peter, and, and thank you for that. I, I As you were going through, I was sitting there having, taking mental notes, and then I immediately was just like, I'm going to run out of mental room here in a second because of all the, the different topics that you touched on. You know, faith is one that uh, I would love to dig into simply because I do think that it, that is a, obviously a component of um, of diversity in terms of our approach. But you highlighted so many other different things. It's diversity of thought and, you know, and openness. It's, you know, the fantastic aspect of what you you highlighted, which is actually incorporating social determinants <laughs> of health in medical education so that way people are asking the questions that we right. didn't ask. Uh, I don't even want to say how long ago it was. Everybody else can do the math, but it's it's bothering me right now. Uh, and, uh, um, and then what you're doing with the health plan. And I, I would love to hear, we, we've, we've had, I, I put in air quotes, payers before, but I think what you're doing with the health alliance plan is a bit unique. And so maybe you can tell uh, me and the listeners a little bit more about that work. Yeah, uh, I think, again, this is the great thing about integrated systems that are delivering care and also are involved in payment. And I know listeners may have varying feelings, understandably, about payers and insurance companies. And um, I welcome the skepticism and the challenge. Uh, we are in a nation that is has a very diverse system in how we pay for healthcare. It is not perfect, for sure. Um, and we challenge ourselves at Health Alliance Plan. Health Alliance Plan is a Michigan-based plan. Uh, it was formed um, in the mid 20th century, really to support auto workers. Uh, and then over time um, became its own entity and then purchased by Henry Ford in the late 70s, uh, Henry Ford Health System. And we are now part of Henry Ford Health um, as our focus of, of outcomes is around generalized health. Um, HAP is um, a company as a health insurance company. And we talk about this a lot internally that we are not just a health insurance company, we are a health plan. And that means we partner with the members that we serve. We partner with uh, physicians and the care team uh, to make sure that we can get the best possible outcome. And really our mission is wholly around the quintuple aim. And we've talked about the triple aim, the quadruple aim. Um, 
really our focus is around the experience of care, uh, making sure that we're getting the best possible population health outcomes, that we are focusing on affordability, uh, and that we are making sure that we are doing whatever we can, and this can be a challenge, to support our physicians and care team to get out of the way where we can with really a foundational focus on equity. Um, because if we achieve great results for one part of the population, that's not good enough. We have to be an instrument to help everybody in our population attain their highest health status. So as a health plan, what we're really focused on is understanding the root causes of health issues and health inequity, and then really partnering with physicians and care teams in our network. Obviously, we're part of Henry Ford Health, so a large portion of our membership is getting care through the Henry Ford Health Enterprise, but we work with a number of other physician organizations and care groups in our network. And a lot of our work is really focused around making sure that our benefit designs are directing care to those things that are evidence-based and that wherever possible, we're reducing cost barriers so that folks can get the care that they need. We obviously have to steward the healthcare dollar and we have to service a large population, which means many days uh, we're making decisions about how dollars get directed, but our focus is getting those dollars so that we can get the health outcomes that we need. And um, some days are easier than others when we're doing that. Um, but I think as a healthcare industry, and I can certainly speak for integrated health plans like HAP and others that are integrated, there is a professional expectation among small integrated plans like ours that we are going to be partners um, and that we are an instrument for the outcome. We're not necessarily the direct care delivery model, but we are the vehicle by which those dollars can get to where they need to be. Um, and that means a lot of openness to our members, a lot of openness to our physicians and care teams in our network. And that means we have to be willing to take some criticism and relook at how we do things. Uh, but it also means that we can actually bring some information and data to folks because we have the wide lens view. And that's often something that I know when I'm practicing, you don't have directly. You have the patient in front of you. You may have a little bit of data, maybe if it's on your service or in your panel, but you may not know what's going on across the entire region. And that's that's where I think integrated plants like ours have a role to play, and we should have a role to play, and the public should have that expectation of us as plants. No, it's, uh, it's incredibly, it, well, I think it's complex in terms of understanding what your role is, but I do think that what you've described is certainly, in my experience, pretty unique in terms of saying we're not, we aren't that, we aren't the care delivery model. We're that vehicle and right. defining partnership. And and I would love, uh, you know, for not only myself but the listeners as well. Like, what's an example of? What that partnership looks like both you said with members as well as with with you know some of the clinical team members because we had you know we certainly have listeners that are non-clinicians as well as people who are still practicing yeah so two quick examples i can think of um, we service a variety of products uh, 
one of the products that we support is Medicare Advantage. Um, and Medicare Advantage is a product that we should be talking more about. It's definitely the fastest growing product nationally. And the Medicare program, um, if you think about the roots of Medicare when it was established in the mid 60s, actually, whether by intent, but certainly by outcome, was an instrument of trying to establish health equity. Um, there's some real history in the Medicare program when it was established. It really wasn't until Medicare was established that hospitals and participating uh, deliverers of care actually had to deliver care without discrimination. Up until Medicare was rolled out, there actually was no vehicle to ensure that people could access care in the same way. And there was actually a lot of controversy when Medicare was established because the Hill-Burton Act and other federal statutes that built hospitals actually allowed for segregation of care yep. and Medicare eliminated that. Um, it's pretty amazing when you look at the story of Medicare, how big of a change that actually created. Yes, it created access for seniors and eventually for those with lower incomes through the Medicaid program to access care in a way that they couldn't, but it actually completely disrupted systems of segregation that existed in hospitals prior to its implementation. It, that, as you can imagine, at the time, that probably was not and certainly was not accepted, but it quickly became a reality. And when you fast forward now to Medicare Advantage, um, which is basically the federal government giving us premium dollars on behalf of a Medicare beneficiary to then be responsible for the care and deliver those dollars, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has been very clear to health plans like ours that participate in Medicare Advantage that we have an obligation, which we embrace, to make sure that we are achieving equity outcomes within Medicare Advantage. So pretty soon on the horizon, uh, Medicare Advantage plans will be ranked and uh, scored on their ability to achieve health outcomes for common preventive and chronic disease measures based on uh, race and socioeconomic status. Um, we could have a little debate about how those numbers get determined, but I think the concept is a good one. And I know plans like ours embrace that responsibility. It's a challenge, um, but I think it's a great example of how payment properly implemented can be used as an instrument to promote better health. And I think those roots go all the way back to the establishment of Medicare as a federal program, and they continue and they accelerate for those of us as plans that are entrusted with those Medicare dollars to support beneficiaries. Uh, so your listeners will be seeing more of this in the public over the next couple of years where Medicare Advantage plans like ours and others will actually be rated on our ability to achieve not only our overall all outcomes in the Medicare STARS program, which is already public, but how are you actually doing in those measures for your different subpopulations that you're entrusted to serve? So I think it's it, it's wonderful that you bring this up because it's the piece that is by far the most distant from patients. They don't really understand it other than I have I have yeah. coverage, whatever that coverage is. And it's still even foreign for many clinicians in terms of figuring out what the payment model is. But payment reform 
is a critical aspect of achieving health equity because of not only what you stated has occurred historically, but then what's going on in, in current states. So that way there is the onus on everybody within the health system. It's onus isn't exclusively on us as clinicians. It's certainly, certainly not exclusive um, to patients um, who may or may not be suffering um, from the existing system, but understanding that now all components, hospitals, health plans, et cetera, are all being evaluated on this. So I, I too think it's fa fantastic. Um, I, nobody likes to be measured because nobody wants to be last on the list. But the only way that we all collectively get better, you can't <laughs> you can't manage what you don't measure. And so let's uh, let's all get on the same page. Yeah, and Greg, you brought up an important part around payment reform. So one of the things that plans like ours are heavily engaged in, um, and again, an effort that we're embracing as well, is that uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has established an expectation that by 2030 all Medicare beneficiaries and the vast majority of Medicaid beneficiaries in, in all the states um, are in a accountable care arrangement with their care team and physician that is focused on experience of care, outcomes, affordability, um, and that is really changing the paradigm shift from traditional fee-for-service where you get paid for a service when the service is rendered, which intuitively um, would make sense, but when you're trying to manage an overall health outcome over a long period of time, it's really changing us from that fee-for-service model to we're going to pay and incentivize for the overall outcome. So we are sadly in a country now where our life expectancy has continued to decline. And even worse, our life expectancy as a nation compared to other similar nations in the world is even more dramatically declined for populations of color, for populations in rural areas versus urban areas. There are many inequities in our system, and it's very clear that the fee-for-service system uh, has not necessarily served us well as a population. Now, value-based models are not perfect either, but they do create a model where dollars flow to medical homes, to practitioners, and they are rewarded for the overall outcome. And in what's incumbent upon us as plans is to partner with physicians in our network to make sure that our reimbursement models help support physicians to do that. So that means that, yes, they're still going to get paid for office visits, but we should reimburse for things like care management in between visits. We should reimburse for things like phone support or maybe even community health workers that help support and meet knee to knee with patients and help educate them about a health condition. So we have to broaden how we support the clinical delivery system to get to those outcomes. So we all have a stake in this and we all have an accountability and a responsibility to do that. I know that your listeners who have a Medicare card or a commercial plan card, that may not all be evident to them, but that is a lot of the work that's going on. And that is the professional accountability that we have as health plans to support physicians and care teams to get those outcomes. Thank you for that. And 
Well, we, I promised you at a time that I wasn't going to sit here and grill you. I fail every single time I get on this, uh, <laughs> on the podcast. And so I'm going to give you a breather and uh, open myself up um, for our Ask Greg section. So what you got for me? Well, um, actually, I'm, I'm going to ask you again. I'm going to, although you and I still practice medicine, we're still seeing patients. Obviously, I spend most of my time at the health plan. From the from the physician standpoint, from the standpoint of equity and from the standpoint of relationship, what more do you think we can be doing as health plans to partner and and be partners in this DEI health journey? It's a great question. And that's the first time I think anybody has asked me to even consider it in that in that perspective. I knew you were going to come with the high hard fastball, especially after the Astros beat down the Tigers. But <laughs> um, I, I think I think that it's the the real the most important component. I think it, you know, particularly in terms of plans relation to physicians, is to help identify. To me, it, it's about it's ultimately about payment, right? It's Let's get aligned on what an outcome is, what defining a good outcome is, and then also, again, highlighting the things that you've already said that the plan is responsible for, right? If the plan is going to be responsible for equity, then I think it is getting, and I've reinforced this a number of times uh, during the podcast, is getting physicians to understand what's an activity, a clinical activity that you can do consistently that is going to meaningfully Reduce, uh, you know, reduce inequities that we already seeing in healthcare benefits obviously the patient. It benefits the plan, and ultimately it benefits the 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 physician. I, I think that you know you already highlighted it, right? If we can do telephone calls, right? If we can make it very clear, and obviously you and I work on the hospital side, mm-hmm. that appointment when they leave the hospital. Everybody's like, oh, that's a that's a foregone conclusion. You and I both know that is like the furthest thing from a foregone yeah. conclusion. A patient getting an appointment within seven days to ensure that it, was, it isn't a failed discharge. But there is reams of evidence clearly indicating simply making sure that you address that aspect eliminates, you know, variances or eliminates inequities with respect to hospital readmissions. Is reduces the overall total cost of care, gets patients into their actual medical home, which is the single most important thing that we as hospitalists really are interested in. We don't want to see you die. But I think that if plans are able to help the physicians to connect the dots, because at the end of the day, you know, I, I hear it as much as you do, right? Oh, no, it's just one more box I have to check, and it's checking the box. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not. Not only here's the evidence, but here's the outcomes that we're we're seeing the results. And certainly as hospitalists, readmissions is a huge one, um, right. but also knowing that there's meaningful length of stay improvements. And so I, I think that the, you know, restating your question and, you know, and, and answering it very directly, it's I think plans can do a better job in terms of articulating this is why, here's the evidence supported, and this is why we're incentivizing this particular activity not because we want to increase burden but because we know in the like you said the 30,000 foot view that we get for our community this is what's going to make a meaningful impact 
And I think that the more that we can do that and incentivize those behaviors, I think that the more rapidly we're able to collapse those the, the inequities that we can see. Um, and certainly that you, your, your plan is aggregating and other plans are. Yeah, Greg, I think you're making a, an important point. And, and this is always an opportunity for all of us as health plans to be more explicit about the things that matter based on published evidence, by the way, this is not just according to us as a plan, this is us looking at the evidence and then making sure that our benefit designs actually remove barriers and wherever possible actually facilitate those things happening. One of the great things that HAP is that we are um, unique in Michigan and that our president and CEO is a physician. Um, we're, we're led by a physician, we're very clinically oriented um, physicians within our health plan really drive policy and benefit design. Um, and that means that we see ourselves as an instrument and that means reading the literature. I read more journals now in some ways than I did when I was full-time practicing because you want what you do as a plan to be supporting the evidence. And I think the most important thing really we can do as a plan is what you just stated at the end, and that is really supporting the medical home. And this is the single biggest gap that we have as a nation in that we need to really grow and support and nurture primary care in the medical home and in the broadest sense. Certainly that's our primary care physicians, but also the broader medical home care team that means nurses, that means community health workers, that means the broader team to really meet people where they are. Those office visits are important. Um, and that relationship is important, but also I've come to appreciate what other disciplines bring in a really fully equipped, well-supported medical home to go out in the community, meet with people after that hospitalization if they can't make it to the visit, helping them connect with their physician and care team in person, uh, virtually, by telephone, whatever way we can to help them connect. And that's that's even more important for our segments of the community, uh, folks in rural areas, folks of color in urban areas um, who don't have access. And that is a national imperative that we as plans need to be continuing to support. Uh, you uh, couldn't say that uh, and uh, enough and uh, and as many times and with enough emphasis as need be. And I think that you're highlighting, you know, other modalities, telemedicine, virtual, like whatever ways that we can get to patients. Um, and you know, understanding the the shortage of physicians and uh, and others and and care delivery, I think, is critical because we've got to. There are too many people that have so many needs, and if we can just nobody, no one person is going to be able to solve the problem, and certainly no one plan is. But I think figuring, you know, having that holistic view and, and approaching it that way is is pretty critical. Jay, you have sat very quietly. Well, I, I do have a question. I've had it in the back of my mind, but it kind of takes us in a slightly different direction, possibly. So I've been I've been kind of waiting for a good chance. Um, but I think Peter, being a, a Midwesterner at heart, I, I live in LA now, but I'm, I'm born and raised Chicago. So, oh, great. Um, so keep an eye on on the Midwest. And I think Detroit's such an inter interesting city. And I imagine the last 15 years, you know, I know 10 years ago um, is when Detroit declared for bankruptcy. And, you know, just about a month ago, there was a great article on NPR, kind of the 
rebirth, if you will, of Detroit. And so I'm just kind of curious, um, as the city that you're kind of serving and the community you're serving kind of changes a little bit, whether it's the demographic or even just the morale of the city, all those things, does, does that force you to have to approach how you're solving the inequities a little differently or have to find new ideas or, or the issues you're facing slightly? Um, you know, do you have to pivot at all or, or be a little creative? Because I think a lot of times, you know, it's such a unique city in that way. I think the challenges you're facing are happened a lot quicker in 10 years than in most cities it takes 30, 40 years probably to have some of those issues. Yeah, Jay, thanks for uh, bringing that up. And I love the Midwest. Uh, I love Michigan. Um, great folks in Detroit. Um, love the town. Um, and, you know, Detroit, Detroiters in general, and I would say even more broadly in Michigan, and Michigan's a very complex and diverse state, uh, but specifically for Detroit and Southeast Michigan, we have a lot of pride in our town. And of course, for decades, Detroit has sort of been the butt of many jokes. And, you know, we've had our challenges going back many years. And of course, our local area has suffered through economic downturns. We've learned to diversify um, our economy and our jobs. Um, I I think that Detroit has had a series of rebirths and phases. Um, and we have many different communities where obviously uh, the city itself is largely a black community predominantly, but we have many, many diverse groups in and around the city. Uh, we have one of the largest uh, Middle Eastern populations outside of the Middle East. Um, that's historically been that way for decades. And that community, a very proud community, has its own health challenges, its own needs. Um, we have suffered in Michigan with the Flint water crisis. This is something that a Health Alliance plan, we have members in that area, we're deeply committed to the Flint area. And that is a, sadly, a profound statement on the impact of environment on health. And one that will be with us for probably another half century literally we will be watching multiple generations on lead issues and other things despite all that um folks are proud they um they they continue on we were hit very hard during covid and i participated in the care of covid patients in detroit you know new york grabbed the headlines understandably because of the size of the city and the impact of what happened in New York City and other large urban areas, but on a per capita basis, Detroit had a serious uh, hit from COVID. And we learned very early on that sadly, different populations were affected differently. Uh, our black patients were dying at a higher rate. They were not presenting to the hospital soon enough. Again, another indicator of access gaps and other issues. All of our work in DEI just accelerated during COVID and, and beyond. And it was a warning signal to us, to your point, Jay, that we have to be nimble. We have to take in new data. We have to be open and we have to meet people in the community. We can't be in the hospital waiting for people to come to us. Um, we have to go out and try new things. Uh, one of the things I was proudest of at HAP was that we committed to to vaccinating as many of our members as possible um, when the vaccine became available during COVID. 
And we actually challenged ourselves and said, how are we going to get this vaccine to people? Uh, actually, we had employed a variety of tactics down to um, in the summer and fall of 2021. We actually set up shop at local McDonald's um, based on zip code data, knowing where our unvaccinated members were. And I literally stood in the drive through lane and talked to people as they were ordering their Big Mac and tried to convince them to get a vaccine while they were waiting in line. And I actually was able to get about one out of every eight people to get vaccinated. And they were not planning to do it that day. I had a mobile truck with me and um, folks kind of made fun of me, like, what's the doctor doing, like standing in the drive through line? But why did I do that? Because I recognized I had to go to where people were. And if I, if I actually couldn't sort of convince them to get vaccinated, I often was able to get them nudged at answer their questions. You know, when they were on their own turf in their car, you were amazed what kind of the questions I was asked that maybe they didn't want to ask their regular doctor. And I said, hey, great question. Let me try to answer it for you. And so we have to challenge ourselves to connect with the people that we serve in the way that they want to be connected with. Uh, and that may mean we go to McDonald's or we go to sporting events or we we try to connect health to people's everyday life. Yeah, because we make so many assumptions and we don't think about it that it's a part of our everyday life. And, right. uh, and so that's a, it's a critical aspect. Well, we are coming near the end of our time. Uh, and as we typically do, Peter, we say, number one, What's a topic that you want to hear about uh, in the future? And or do you have a guest that you think that we should bring on? Uh, well, as far as topics, uh, I say, Greg, keep doing what you're doing. I really enjoy your podcast. Um, I think we need to have more open discussion about DEI and health. And uh, I look forward to your future podcasts on that. As far as guests, uh, a few folks came to mind. Um, Dr. Kimberly Dawn Wisdom uh, is one of our senior vice presidents at Henry Ford Health. She has been a champion of DEI and health equity issues for decades, uh, has done a lot of work in uh, maternal health, uh, has really made an impact in our Detroit community. Um, she has really been an inspiration for me on my own DEI journey. Um, Another person that I thought of, Greg, that you and I both know well is Dr. Uh, Maurice Scholas. So, uh, and Maurice, as you know, has also been a vocal champion on this since you and I were med students. Um, and I learned a lot from Maurice in our time at the AMA. Um, and I continue to enjoy seeing his posts on LinkedIn and the things that he's doing. Um, so, a couple of folks that sort of came to my mind, uh, hopefully, that we can get on your show. Sounds terrific. Uh, and we will uh, we will ask your help. Peter, any last thoughts or anything else that you want to share before we wrap up? So one last closing reflection. And, um, you know, we just celebrated the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's March on Washington. And I always like to remind folks in our community that uh, Dr. King was actually quite an advocate for healthcare. Yeah. And he has a famous quote um, in 1966, and this was around the time of Medicare enactment. And um, 
the quote is, of all forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhuman because it often results in physical death. And I remind myself of that quote that we all have a role to play in equity and our ability to get everyone to their best state of health is the most potent way to really bring justice um, to our community. So I think of Dr. King's words uh, this week and during this podcast and in my daily work um, because it the struggle continues and you know we all we all have to be open and nimble in that in that journey. So perfectly stated. I don't think it needs any uh, additional comment. Thank you so much, Peter, for being here, uh, for sharing your thoughts. And uh, we're going to bring you back on at some point in time because uh, that's the fastest way I'm going to get to. You never make it down to Houston, and I, and I rarely get up to Detroit, <laughs> but we'll we'll work that out. All right. Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Jay. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.